Well, thank you, um, Steve and uh, Dr. Rosenberg. I'd like to welcome you to the National Institutes of Hope, because what you saw in the past hour is exactly what we are about, and it's provide hope for Mr. Wilson, Mr. Rodriguez, and also provide an environment where hope can be created. And I'd like to pay tribute, really, to Dr. Rosenberg, because uh, as, um, as if, how many of you, before I go, how many of you are in biomedical sciences, biological sciences? Raise your hands. So I, I think a great majority, how many of you are not? Good. So we're going to have to uh, go a little bit about the history of surgery. You know, surgeons uh, in our um, lore, if you will, medical school lore, is uh, the fellow who, is, who knows exactly where to shoot, even if he doesn't know where the goal is. And, uh, and, uh, and surgeons have this reputation, but you know, it's, nothing is further from the truth. I've worked with surgeons all my life, and research surgeons are completely different, and Dr. Rosenberg actually is the example of exactly why this research could not be done anywhere else but here at the NIH, because he has that ability to think of biology and think out of the box rather than think tools, cutting, burning, and all those things. And this is where I think biology is going in the 21st century. So this century, to me, is going to be the, as the century of the life sciences, just like the 20th century was the century of physics and, and, all, and technology and communications and IC chips. And I, my background, actually, I grew up in Algeria in a no-name no place. And my father was a math teacher, the physics teacher. And, and very quickly said, you have to think out of the box and be relevant, be relevant in the knowledge field to the hope of humanity and mankind. That's why I decided going to medicine. Now let me tell you a little story about the hope and the courage of patients who come here as partners. You've heard that if it weren't for them, I don't think we could do the research that we could do. But if it wasn't for people like, like Dr. Rosenberg who take the chances of failure after failure after failure and keep going, because they have a dream, they have an idea. So I'm going to tell you a story about the experimental surgeon. You know, the life of the experimental surgeon is as follows. He told you about the eight-page uh, uh, consent form. Here's how it goes. So you go to the patient and you describe all the horrible things that may happen based on the experience of, of failing once, failing twice. But you know you fail, and then you keep your hope going. And you tell the patient, look, Surgery I'm proposing, the treatment I'm proposing, has a 17% uh, uh, failure rate uh, or 30% failure rate, mortality rate. But don't worry. The first 30 patients have already died. <laughs> <laughs> this is the joke that we have in the medical uh, world about the fact that you need to continue. Now, someone was asking, well, but Dr. Rosenberg, what you do is so expensive, so complicated, only the NIH can do it. And it's true, we have the only research hospital in the world that is fully dedicated to breakthrough research. Actually, you don't make it here at the clinical center unless what you're trying to do is high risk, high impact, truly defining. Now, you ask, is expensive? And Well, let me give you two stories. One is the history of the telephone. When the telephone was proposed to, uh, at the time, it was Wells Fargo, I mean, uh, the uh, Alexander Graham Bell uh, went and tried to get his invention adopted. And they looked at it. They had the best experts in the world come around. And 
look at the telephone and say, you know, only eight people in the world could afford it. And they dropped it. And they didn't fund it. And he created his own company, AT&T, the precursor of AT&T, created his own labs, Bell Labs, and so on, and the rest is history. It's a little bit like Orville and Wilbur Wright on a beach in North Carolina with that contraption, and, and somebody saying, how are you going to go to the moon with this? How are you going to go to Hong Kong with this? And that's what I think Dr. Rosenberg is, is the Orville Wright, the Alexander Graham Bell of today. Now, I also uh, believe that in my research, what I've tried to do is really bring a different point of view to medical imaging. I was a radiologist, and I thought that the major contribution I could make would be to combine rigorous physics and, and, and mathematics and measuring skills, you know, quantitative skills, to a field that was pretty much observational, pretty much random, uh, not random, but uh, empirical, if you will, without really analytical approaches. And my first discovery was uh, related to how to measure density, calcium, in tissues. And I was a young resident, and I had just come from Algeria, and I'd, you might think I spoke English, then I didn't, actually. I, I had learned English here. And here you are with your teacher, and you say, you know, I have this idea, Mr. Dr. Siegelman, was the, my mentor at Hopkins, and, and he said, what is it? I said, I think we can use CT numbers to find out how much calcium there is in tumors, because we knew at the time that lung nodules often were benign and had a high calcium content, and people were operated. They had the surgeons who knew how to fire but didn't really know where the goal was. Uh, approach, uh, forgive me, Steve, I didn't mean that as a bad thing. Uh, but I thought that maybe there was a smarter way to do it. And I went around and talked to people and said, I think I can resolve this problem. I think I can do it. And uh, <clears throat> the greatness of our, of our country here is the fact that it's open to new ideas. And instead of saying, why? Why do you want to do this? You're just starting your residency. Go, go on and study the curriculum and the books and so on. He said, well, why not? If you think it can work, why don't you try it? And that's how my career started. So the key thing here is find an environment where you can do it. And so I'd like to just go over some principles of what are the great institutions and why are they so great? Because they have this why not philosophy. I think if I can leave you with a message, the future is going to belong to the why not people, not to the why do something people. And that culture is fundamentally what will make life sciences succeed or fail. And there's no greater challenge in front of us than mastering the life sciences because it's not going to impact just health. It will impact environmental sciences, how we provide sensitive environmental solutions to environmental remediation, to loss of the biomass, to energy generation. Now you see this, uh, this is the NIH campus that you're visiting today. And this is probably the largest concentration of scientists in biomedical research. Those of you who know biomedical sciences know that. There are 6,000 scientists on this campus, but this is only 10% of what the National Institutes of Health do. 85% of our budget goes out to support scientists around the country and around the world. And we do this at over 3,000 research institutions. We support about 320,000 scientists of all kinds. Uh, in around the world to address the problems that we know people like Mr. Wilson who have the courage to say I'm not just going to go home and die 
I'm going to fight. We want to support that hope through that research. So I want to just tell you two things. I have become, not by design, if you will, a, um, a, a manager of science, and I like to do science on science, and I like to understand why is it that some organizations become such a, so, so dominant in their, in their field. I, I heard Oxford, MIT, Cambridge, and so on, NIH, and, and others do not. So I'm gonna share with you as leaders of the future what I've learned, I may be wrong, probably am, uh, but whatever it is, just take it as it is. I really think America's prominence in science comes back to the Civil War in, in 1863, when President Lincoln, out of the middle of a very cruel civil war, decided that uh, with Congress that the country needed a National Academy of Sciences. And a National Academy of Sciences that would be independent of the government. And that would be funded and would provide advice to Congress and to the President on many issues of science. And that was 1863. Now, if you look at that history and you see the impact of that, this became sort of the brain trust of the country in terms of understanding science and technology. And providing that sort of independent, free-thinking advice was the key concept behind the National Academy of Sciences, which then led to a series of institutions being either reformed or created completely out of the blue because these people advised philanthropists so, for example, I, I, I um, uh, come from an institution called Johns Hopkins University. Well, guess what? It was, it was funded by a gentleman who made a fortune in banking and railroads at the time and never had children. He was a Quaker. And look at the history. Look at the connection in history of, of how great things happen. Um, he was a Quaker, and, and therefore, if you remember in those days, in the 1820s, the Quakers decided that slavery was not something to be supported, and they decided to abandon slavery. And he was a Quaker and had a plantation in Maryland. Uh, his family did. He was a young kid. And they basically could not sustain themselves in those days. You didn't have the tools and machinery we have. So he went to work with his, for his uncle, who was a trader, a commercial import-export person in the, the harbor in Baltimore, the port of Baltimore, and uh, worked with him and learned a trade and learned investments and banking and so on. It was creative and uh, fell in love with his uh, cousin, the daughter of his uncle. And because of the relationship, there was no way that this love could, be, uh, could happen, so they never, he never married. And she never married. He didn't have a kid didn't have children, and he made probably one of the largest fortunes, fortunes at the time. And he then said, what am I going to do with it? Well, he met a couple of members of the National Academy of Sciences who told him, look, the one thing we need is a research institution, not a training institution, a research institution. And that was the first dedicated research institution that became an example for medical schools and so on. MIT is another example of a defining institution that really talked about the integration with other parts of society. So let me tell you the factors that I think are critical in, in creating institutions like the NIH. One is a key political leader, a key leader with a vision. And that was President Lincoln at the time, 
and for the NIH was President Roosevelt. And then you need to have a sustained financial commitment. You can't just say one year science is great and the next year is we spend too much on it. And then you have to have great governance. You have to have that sense of people who open up to many, many different inputs and, and are open to international scientific interactions and partnerships. Johns Hopkins, for example, recruited its first professors uh, from England, um, uh, Osler, and from people who trained elsewhere, uh, as well as from local talent. You go where the talent is and don't expect the talent to come to you. And I think the, the American dream is really based on that notion that we do, or we are, act as a concentrator as a country, as a concentrator of the best human talent possible to create the hope that we want to sustain. And then the spirit of enterprise, the why not culture, instead of the why, and a lot of patience. And then when you look at other things, what you find is that you can't build a great scientific institution without great scientific champions. And I don't mean directors, I mean champions like Dr. Rosenberg, and who really have a vision which can be shared and sustained over time, but no compromise on the level of excellence you want to reach. If you're not reaching for world-class excellence, you will not reach world-class excellence. And you have to have outstanding resources and then recruit from anywhere that's the best, uh, the best possible scientist and make sure that you constantly attract young minds with novel ideas and try to focus on those, those minds on a few areas.